Well, please open your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 2. And today's question is, are you useful? Christians are at being professionals at beating ourselves up and how terrible we are. And of course, God can never use me. And a lot of that is just lies that we believe. But though I said today's question is, are you useful to the Master? The real question is, can we dare to believe what He says in this passage? He actually wants to use us more than we want to be used by Him. And we know that's the case because He literally outlines three ways that we can avail our life to Him and He would be delighted to use us. Um, I'm reminded of when I went to Michigan as a college student with a traveling preacher who invited me to go with him. And we did a lot of door-to-door evangelism. Uh, We just went up and down streets all over the place, you know, doing the cold call, knock on doors, trying to share the gospel with people, talk to people at the supermarket, the gas station, the parking lots, and did a lot of door-to-door evangelism. And there was a young man uh, in the student ministry who was on my team as we went out one of the days. And in the evening services, sometimes they would have people report about how the day went and, you know, what they saw and how people responded. And I, I believe we saw a few people uh, truly come to faith in Christ. Uh, they certainly made a, a, a biblical profession of faith in Christ. And that young man one night was sharing a little report and update with the church. And he was probably 12 or 13 years old. And he said, uh, Man, I'm sure glad we got out there and did that today because, quote, God needs all the help He can get. And though His theology wasn't all worked out really well, uh, I think it came from a heart of wanting to be used by God. And over time, we'll grow out of all of our, you know, numbskull theology too. But the question isn't, how smooth can we say it? Or what's a magic formula of words? The real question is, are you willing right now to give your whole heart to King Jesus? Right now, right here. If King Jesus says, I will gladly have you and use you for my glory, the whole sermon is, are you willing? That's it. This passage is an expose that God wants to use us more than we want to be used by Him. It's 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19, 20, and 21. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19. Can you open your ears for just a moment to hear the word of the living God? Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Now in a large house, there's not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and earthenware. And some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor sanctified, useful to the Master, prepared for every good work. Join me again at the throne of grace as we ask God to help us. 
unchangeable and gracious Father. We delight in your steadfast love. We ask for grace to do that. To delight in your steadfast love. Father, we are the most undeserving of all the people we can imagine to be recipients of your kindness. So we rejoice in you, in your heart, that you delight to know us as your very own children. Would you draw our hearts to yourself? To practical holiness? Would you liken us more and more to our Lord Jesus Christ? Would you fill us with your own hatred of wickedness? Would you empower us to cleanse ourselves, to be dedicated, wholly set apart for you? Make us useful for your purposes. Ready our hearts at all times with no negotiation for whatever work you would have us to do. You are worthy and we long to be useful in our Master's hand. We pray this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, three verses, verse 19, 20, and 21, is uh, conveniently the outline of the way we'll handle the passage. These verses are a source of great comfort to true Christians and to whole churches, particularly when we are facing the enemy's attack. When Satan and evil workers are seeking to infiltrate our lives and seeking to infiltrate the church of Jesus, these verses offer us tremendous comfort. How is that so? It's because, if you want the whole sermon in a sentence, I've already said, throw your heart out before Jesus. You do that, that's the sermon. But to put in a little more comprehensive sentence, the whole sermon would be this. Today's text shows us that God's purposes will prevail because God will see to it that His people are prepared for Him, that He may use them when He wants to, how He wants to, where He wants to, and for whatever purpose He so pleases. Again, God's purposes will prevail. Why? Because God will see to it that His people are prepared for Him to use us whensoever, howsoever, for whatever purpose, He pleases. We're going to take these verses one at a time, and I hope that you'll see that theme threaded throughout. In the first verse, verse 19, we'll see that God's purposes to save and to sanctify His people will prevail. That means will not be stopped. No one will frustrate God's plan to see to it that His purpose to save His people and to sanctify those same people that He saves will prevail. Although the church has been under attack by the enemy and by the workers of the enemy from the very beginning, nothing, nothing, nothing will impede God's plan to give His Son a bride. That bride of redeemed sinners saved by the virtue of Jesus who also will seek to live holy lives to be like Jesus. Then in verses 20 and 21, God's going to give us an illustration, verse 20, and an explanation, verse 21, of what it means to be a useful instrument in the hands of the Lord. The title of today's sermon is Devoted to the Master's Use. Devoted to the Master's Use. Point number one, verse 19, here's your big words for the day. 
Verse 19, point number one, the invincibility, not invisibility, the invincibility and the visibility of God's sovereign love. I'm not trying to just be wordy, but I do want you to think about those words. The invincibility and the visibility of God's sovereign love. Those are big words, but please don't tune me out. When I say that verse 19 is about the invincibility and the visibility of God's sovereign love, I mean that this verse explains that nothing will stop God's love for His people. Nothing will impede God's people from pursuing a life that pleases God. His love is both invincible, it cannot be thwarted or stopped, and visible. Those who receive His love will live unto Him. So look at verse 19 again and see if you can get where I get that. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands having this seal. What is the seal? A, the Lord knows those who are His. B, everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. So the first part, invincible, the Lord knows His people. You're not going to change that or undo that. And B, those whom He knows will fight against sin. Live visibly holy lives. The invincibility and visibility. Before we go into those two little phrases, let's not miss a very key word. There's a lot of key words in the Bible. I hope you have a good translation of the Bible. If you want to know what we think those are, come ask any of the members or pastors of this church. There's a lot of good translations into English. I hope you have one of them. I'm using New American Standard. There's a lot of other good translations. There's a lot of those translations in this room today. I hope you have a good one. Here's why. You need to pay careful attention to the words of the word. And one of those very important key words that you should always pay attention to is right at the beginning of verse 19. Nevertheless. Well, there's a lot of key words like that. You've heard the adage. Anytime you see the word therefore, you should go back and see what it is there for. Nevertheless is like that. Yours may not have nevertheless at the beginning of verse 19. Your translation may say however, or but, or meanwhile. But at the beginning of verse 19, if you have an okay translation, it should have some kind of transition like that. Not that, but this. Nevertheless. Well, that word, nevertheless, should be something that you could just walk up here right now, take the microphone, and explain to everybody. You already know what it means. But to put us all on the same page, would you be able to affirm with me, I'm going to try to say what I think you would say. I think you would say, you don't even have to go back and see what came before this word. To know that something's changing. That is not going to stop this. So-and-so and so-and-so, nevertheless, this. That is not going to have any bearing on what comes next. That's the way this word works. That's why I say invincible. The invincibility of God's sovereign love. Well, in the previous passage, it is actually helpful to know that Paul had been warning Timothy about false teachers, even calling two of them by name and exposing the far-reaching harmful effects of their godless chatter in the church. These people were talking a lot of spiritual verbiage, 
with a Christless focus. They may have put Jesus' name here and there and everywhere, but they were using Jesus, not loving Jesus. They were trying to actually distract from Him using His Word. So these false teachers were people that Paul was warning Timothy about, but if you just go back in the passage, you can also see he's saying they're having a very detrimental effect on the church at Ephesus. They're weakening the faith of some people. It's like cancer. It's gangrene. It's just like spreading through the body. And while they're busy doing that, nevertheless, God is busy doing something else. False teaching, as John said last week, is actually more dangerous and more damaging to a local church than if someone were to, God forbid, outright deny the faith and say they hate Jesus and don't believe in Him anymore. False teaching is more dangerous than someone disowning the faith. Don't get me wrong, both are very, very, very bad. But it's more dangerous because, as Brian pointed out, false teaching has a greater gravitational pull. It's more subtle. False teaching takes more people away from Jesus than if one person just denies the faith. According to verse 18, false teaching will, quote, upset the faith of some. Or verse 16, lead to further ungodliness. Or verse 14, lead to the ruin of the hearers. It will hurt you. You are not strong enough. I am not strong enough to withstand false teaching. So Paul knows, one commentary said, that Timothy is dealing with the threat of false teachers and false teaching. Verse 17 and 18. So he needs to remember, verse 8, and remind God's people, verse 14, that God has a situation totally under control. The invincibility of God's sovereign love. His reign, that commentary said, God's reign is not destabilized. So let's look at those two things quickly in verse 19. Statement one, statement two. Invincible and visible. First, the invincibility of God's love. His sovereign love, verse 19. The well-placed opening word of verse 19 raises a flag in the face of all who seek to do God's people harm. The flag is emblazoned with terminology and it says, God's love for his people will never be stopped. Try as you may, do what you want. God will keep his people. But the focus of the verse is actually not toward the people doing the harm. Instead, the flag is facing the objects of God's love. In verse 19, he is saying something about the false teachers by inference, but he's talking to God's people. And he's, he, he, he's raising a flag in our face so that we would know that those who seek to frustrate the plans of God will have zero bearing on God's ability to carry out his purposes. While they're delving into the latest hot, top, hot topics and distracting the focus away from the biblical Jesus, God is busy marching forward with his purposes in the lives of all of his people. That's what I mean when I'm describing the first point as the invincibility of God's sovereign plan and his love. Not only does God say nevertheless, but he adds a modifier to explain the type of foundation of his kingdom. It's not just a foundation, it is that, but it is a, quote, firm, solid, stable foundation, verse 19. 
So I don't know if you can picture in your mind's eye a gigantic slab for a gigantic building. The building's not on the slab yet. The slab's just been poured. The concrete is set. It's hard. But for some reason, the construction workers followed the architect's plan to rent the biggest cranes you could possibly imagine. And while the concrete was wet, before it had totally set up and hardened, the whole foundation was encircled by this series of the most massive cranes ever known to earth, and together they lowered down a press right into the soft concrete, and they stamped the foundation. And then they lifted the press, and the cranes went about their way to other job sites. And when the foundation concrete finally set and was hardened, you just took a day and walked the perimeter. You're standing on the solid foundation, and you're trying to read the words inside that are inscribed upon this seal. The first statement you read in this stamp or imprint is the Lord knows those who are His. Now why is it valuable, I would say vital, that God put this line in this verse at this point? Because these false teachers are, quote, upsetting the faith of some. I mean, there are people who are, quote, being led to ruin spiritually. They are wrangling about words full of worldly and empty chatter and more people are becoming, verse 16, more ungodly. And you're one of the members of that church. And then you stand on this big foundation and God says, I know your name. I know you. Ray Van S. said about this verse that in spite of the work of the evildoers and the evil teachers, this statement is about the unshakable stability. My word is invincibility of God's kingdom. This is a sweet gospel truth. Now I won't ask you to raise your hands, but there's a number of people here who actually came across a big flowing body of water that direction, the Mississippi River. A bunch of you Arkansas people traveled across one of those bridges to get to this building today. And I took a little uh, boat ride, actually, on the Mississippi with my family recently. And the narrator was telling us all this history about Memphis and the river. And he started talking about the bridges. And the Harahan Bridge, which is lit up at night and has the nice new walkway across it, was built over 100 years ago. And some of you drove across that bridge today. And it's still there. But as he was describing it, I, I don't even remember all the details, so I can't bore you with them. But I do remember that, you know, maybe how they build bridges in massive flowing bodies of water is they put down these columns that are hollow, and they pump all the water out. And so the river's flowing around the column, but it's not in the column. And then they dig out the dirt and pump it, I guess, into the river, and they just keep pumping and pumping and pumping until they hit bedrock. And to build that bridge over 100 years ago, they drilled and drilled and drilled and drilled and drilled. They pumped and pumped and pumped until about 200 feet below dirt level, they hit bedrock. 
And on that foundation, they set the pillars for the bridge that some of you drove across today. And God wants you to know. God wants you to know. God wants you to know that the bedrock of your stability in Him is not if you know Him. That's not the bottom. That's not a strong enough foundation. Do you know that you know that you know? I hope you do. There's a lot of verses that say you should. But that's not the bottom. The bedrock of if you have a relationship with Him is not if you know Him, but if He knows you from eternity. He wrote your name in a book. And He dispatched His Son to come die for your wretched soul so that He can have you with Him forever. He made that plan before you were created. He knows your name. Nobody's going to snatch you out of His hand. This theme is so replete in Scripture, I could spend the rest of my precious minutes telling you about it, but I've got to summarize some of it. Does God know everything? Yes. Does He know everybody? Yes. So this should make you ask some questions. Why is God going to waste time saying He knows some people? Doesn't He know everybody? Yes, He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows how many hairs are on your head. He knows your prayers before you pray them. He knows the thoughts in your mind before you think them. Psalm 139 says He knows you're sitting down and I'm standing up. He knows everything about you. He knows what you're going to do tomorrow. He knows the day you're going to die. He knows you. Yes, He knows you and He knows everybody that way. But He only knows some people as His prized, loved children. He does not know everybody that way. Old Testament prophet Nahum, those clean white stuck together pages back there in your Bible, says in chapter 1, the Lord knows those who are His. And He knows those who take refuge in Him. This is relational knowledge. This is you are mine. You're my children. Psalm chapter 1 is actually the outline of all the rest of the Psalms. And the first Psalm ends by saying explicitly, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. He's talking about these are my kids. Jesus said some pretty shocking words. I go to church in your name, Jesus. I got baptized in your name. I tell this and that in your name. I did all this work for you, Jesus. I prophesied in your name and did miracles in your name. And I did all this for you, Jesus. And Jesus said to those people, I never knew you. He's talking about saving knowledge. In Matthew 25, when he tells a parable about ten virgins, five who are saved, five who are not, oil represents the Holy Spirit. Long story short, Matthew 25, 12, the five lost come running for Jesus. Don't leave me. Don't forget me. And Jesus said to them, I don't know who you are. He knows those who are His. Please take just a moment and reread the words that God emblazoned on the foundation of His kingdom. Come what may, 
hell, high water, false teachers, people who lie to you about God all day long. Hear God sing over your soul. I love you. I know you. It's a great little chorus and it's got a lot of good theology and we should sing it until we're old to our last day. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But there's actually a song that's deeper than that. Jesus knows me, this I love, for the Bible tells me so. When the winds blow and the storms come, can stand on this rock. Stamp number one. The Lord knows those who are His. The invincibility of His sovereign love. And then the second statement. The Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. He knows those who are His. That's actually a reference to Numbers chapter 16, verse 5. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. That's a reference to Numbers 16, 26. So what's Numbers 16 about? If you don't know what Numbers 16 is about, you can't understand 2 Timothy 2, 19. That's where both of these statements come from. And in Numbers chapter 16, Korah, K-O-R-A-H, led a rebellion with 250 other leaders against Moses and Aaron, God's anointed leaders, appointed leaders, who are actually representatives of Christ. And while they're leading that rebellion, they're saying to everybody, don't follow Moses, number 16.3. He's seeking to exalt himself above the assembly of the Lord. So Moses said, in short, I don't care what you think about me. In fact, Moses put it this way. Tomorrow morning, the Lord will show who is his. Who is holy. The Lord will show tomorrow who he will bring near to himself. Even the one whom he chooses. And then... This phrase, let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness, is right before God killed Korah, his people, and all 250 of those leaders. The way he did it was God opened the earth and swallowed them. And then the 250 leaders he incinerated with fire. God showed very clearly who belonged to him. He's going to do the same thing at the end of the age. But right before he judged Korah and all those who rebelled against Moses and Aaron, right before he killed them, final judgment, the rest of Israel was standing too close. So one big camp of Israel, some of them are Korah and his people, some of them are these 250 leaders, but it's a big assembly of people and God's about to judge them. And Moses said, Israel, back up. Separate yourself. Then God judged them. And Paul is saying, like these false teachers, they just crop up in the midst of the people. They infiltrate the church. They distract from Jesus. They got a new favorite doctrine every five years. They like to lob email dissertations back and forth about all the nuances of why they're right and all other Christians are stupid. And it's just Christless. 
And false teachers have been infiltrating the church from the very beginning. How do you know a false teacher? Do they and those they infect with their teaching have greater admiration for King Jesus? Period. The whole book is about one person and surprise, surprise, it's not you or me. It's Him. And so let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness comes from that section in number 16 where God said, get away from them. So then, when we see the invincible love of Jesus and we're conquered by His love, we will pursue a visible life of holiness, abstain from wickedness. Or we can say positively, pursuing Christ Jesus. So what God does next is He gives an unmistakable illustration. You absolutely know the illustration. So does every person who's ever lived long enough to know what a fork or a bowl or a spoon or a plate is. He gives an unmistakable illustration in verse 20. And then He gives an explanation in verse 21 of how to be useful to the Lord. So number two, not only... We see His invincible sovereign love and the visibility of His love showing up in the holiness of His people. But number two, this unmistakable illustration. Look at verse 20. Now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and earthenware and some to honor and some to dishonor. So what's He doing? If my reading didn't lull you to sleep, you could explain it. God is giving an illustration through Paul to Timothy to describe what is sometimes happening in the church. So God's talking here about vessels that are useful. That is, over and over and over useful. And vessels that might be discarded, not used ever again, like a paper plate. Or, more in the mind of Timothy, perhaps the vessel of dishonor might have been Something used as a latrine or a receptacle for human excrement. Every commentary said that's probably what Paul's talking about. We don't throw away our silver serving platters after one use. And we also don't even think twice about tossing the paper plate or the plastic ware into the trash can after one use. God knows that we all understand this. There are different types of vessels in every house that are used for different purposes. And here, God says in a large house, there's both types of utensils. He's talking about what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 13. In a big house, there's going to be different types of vessels, people, And Jesus said in Matthew 13, the tares will grow up among the wheat. And sometimes in the church, there's going to be, to quote an ancient hymn that we like to sing a lot here, the church is one foundation. Sometimes in the church, there will be false sons in her pale. But against foe and traitor, she ever will prevail. So this illustration in the passage is preparing us for the examples in the final verse. God wants us to know that He already knows those who are His. Verse 19. There are different types of vessels. This isn't good and bad. This is lost and saved. However, in the final verse, God explains what a vessel of honor looks like. 
This is the genuine Christian. It's in verse 21. It shows us how to be useful to the master. So our third and final point is also our application because it tells us what to do. Number three, verse 21, devoted to the master's use. That's the sermon title or how to be useful to the master. Look at verse 21 again. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. I said this final point, devoted to the master's use, is our application. Hopefully you can see that. Depending on how these words are grouped together, there's either three or four ways to make our lives useful to the master. Though I have a penchant for making my sermons longer, I'm going to use three instead of four. Avoid Christless people. Pursue Jesus-like surrender to God. And always be on call for God to use you. That's what I think verse 21 is saying. Avoid Christless people, incidentally, in the church. Pursue Jesus-like surrender to God. Whatever His surrender looked like, make your surrender look like that. And number three, never clock out. Always be on call for God to use you. First, avoid Christless people. I get that from the beginning of verse 21. If anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor. I hope your translation sounded a little different than that that I just read to you from mine. I do appreciate the way mine worded it. And I especially appreciate something you can't see when I read it to you. In the New American Standard, the word things is italicized. Meaning it's not in the original Greek. Paul didn't write it. He wrote... If anyone cleanses himself from these, he didn't add things. And italics in New American Standard just lets the reader understand that. It's a very tough verse, but it's not tough because it's not clear. It's actually tough because it is clear. The difficulty rests on the word these. If anyone cleanses himself from these, what are the these? Well, in context, go back one verse, they're vessels of dishonor. Verse 20. If you go back three more verses, verse 17, it's specific people in the church, like Hymenaeus and Philetus. Do you think when Philetus joined the church, he ever expected his name to be in the Bible in that verse? Somehow, I don't know who joined first or if they joined at the same time. I don't know if they were biologically related, got saved on the same day and joined the church, and got baptized and joined the church the same day. I don't know. But I know that they eventually were both in the church, and I don't suspect that either one of them thought their friendship would be toxic for each other. Do your relationships in the church. Oh, how I've prayed for this moment. Do your relationships in the church push you closer to Christ? I believe the first application in verse 21 is avoid Christless people. If that sounds strange, it does to me too. Ray Van Ness said, this large house is clearly talking about the Christian community. And the these is clearly referring back to people in the church. 
Paul said the same thing to the churches at Thessalonica. I say this a lot just to try to get you to listen. I double dog dare you to listen to this verse. I really, really do. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. Listen. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame, yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Did you hear that? Don't associate with him, even though you think he's a real Christian, because he's taken your eyes off Jesus in the church. That's a problem. If you want to be useful to the Lord, say it another way, if you're one of those people whose name He knows, avoid Christless people. Admonish them. Tell them that like Hymenaeus to Philetus or Philetus to Hymenaeus, I don't know who was the leader and who was a follower or if they were both equally toxic for each other. But somehow or another, they took each other's eyes off of Jesus and took as many other people's eyes off of Jesus as they could. That's a problem. So avoid Christless people. Like Korah, who was in the camp of Israel. And like the church at Ephesus, who was dealing with Hymenaeus and Philetus, these people can often infiltrate the church. They do. Paul is saying in verse 21 that someone who is useful to the Lord is a Christian who is unwilling to let a person in the church distract their focus from Christ. We're not going to lob those dissertation emails about our favorite pet doctrine at each other unless, unless, unless we're trying to see how it bears a discernible relationship to Jesus. It may take us a year to get from here to there, but we're explicitly aiming at Him. We hope that these friends will come back to True North. We admonish them as brothers. But we unflinchingly and unapologetically say, if you will not have your focus on Christ, you will not have my fellowship with you. Second application, I said, is pursue Jesus-like surrender to God. This is the middle of the verse. Sanctified, useful to the Master. Sanctified, useful to the Master. Paul uses that word sanctified a whole lot. At its root, it just means set apart, totally devoted, like a vessel of honor in your house, your best serving dish. You don't you know, feed the dog on it. It's devoted to something else. So also a Christian's life is sanctified, set apart, wholly devoted, dedicated to the use of another. God's people are to be wholly devoted to Him. Like our Savior, our Lord. We draw no lines with God. And I love this little phrase, useful to the Master. The word Master is the root word we get, our word despot, king. From that word, Useful to the master. That word master has this range of meaning. One who completely controls another thing. One who is the solitary owner of a vessel. Another range of meaning. One who holds complete power or authority over another person. A master, a ruler, a lord set apart for him. Christ, you have all authority in heaven and on earth, and I'm very glad you have that same rule and reign in my heart. 
full surrender like Jesus to God. So, avoiding Christless people. Full Jesus-like surrender to God. And then finally I said, always on call. You never clock out. You know, when God you know, is looking for workers, my 12 or 13 year old Michigan friend had it a little wrong, didn't he? God needs all the help he can get. Not really. He actually doesn't need you or me at all. He's very thrilled to employ us in His purposes. And that's what this verse is talking about at the end. Prepared for every good work. Ephesians says God's the one who already prepared the good works that we should walk in. And this is a person who knows that God prepared good work for all of His people. And they are busy preparing their life to walk in those good works. The pillar commentary said, Paul means that this person has totally abandoned themselves to any and all acts of loyalty to God. Anything that walking with Jesus might require, their answer is already yes. So when I asked at the beginning, and uh, here we are 40 minutes later, the whole sermon could be, is your heart right now totally surrendered to Jesus. That's how to be devoted to the Master's use. I mentioned that song we sometimes sing, the church's one foundation, talks about how there will be false sons, false converts within her rank, but against foe or traitor she ever will prevail. Well, though that's true, we want to not be those false sons, so what do we do? We consecrate ourselves. We give all of our life all to Christ. Well, that's the familiar hymn we're going to sing. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. A little strange for our church, but I'm going to say, it's okay if you don't sing the words so long as you pay careful attention to them. If it helps you to focus on the words by singing with all your heart, do it. If it helps you to focus on the words by just reading and meditating as you hear other people sing, do that. But one way or the other, make the lines of this hymn your prayer 